We're going to be looking at Genesis 6, verses 9 to 22. Do you enjoy history? I know some people in this room really do enjoy history, listen to podcasts about it and so on. Uh, perhaps you read books or you watch documentaries about history. We have a natural desire to know what's happened in the past and where we came from. And that's a good and right desire. We need to know some history, not necessarily to be experts on history, but at least to know some history. God has given us a history book, the Bible. It's more than a history book, yes, but it is a history book. The Bible is rooted in history, in events that really happened. Well, unlike any other history book or historical documentary that you may watch, the Bible is 100% accurate, both in the facts that it gives and in how it explains and interprets those facts. The Bible tells history as it really is, what happened and what it means. God overruled the human authors of the Bible as they so that what they recorded was absolutely true. And in the Bible, God is telling us about himself. And one way that he does that is through his actions in history. The Bible shows us throughout the Bible that God is in charge of history. History isn't just some random collection of events, uh, just that people struggling for power and so on. Yes, those things are involved in history, but it's God who ultimately rules over all of history. God is in charge. Well, Genesis 6 and verse 9 is the start of another historical document that has been woven by Moses into the book that we call Genesis. Of course, Moses did that as he was guided by the Holy Spirit. Let's get that, those key words there. These are the generations of Noah. It's the start of a new record that's been woven into the book of Genesis. Here is Noah's family record, this man called Noah, his family record. And what a record this is. What amazing events happened in Noah's lifetime. Now, I'm sure you've heard about Noah's flood. Everyone in this room has heard about Noah's flood. Or perhaps we should say, actually not Noah's flood, but God's flood that Noah experienced. Perhaps haven't heard about it in that way so much. This is possibly the most famous story in the whole Bible. It's important to realize that this isn't myth or legend, this is history. These are real events that happened in the lives of real people, people just like us. That's how Jesus viewed Noah. I won't turn to it now, but Luke 17, verses 26 to 27, show what Jesus thought about Noah. And all the Bible writers who referred to Noah believed that he was a real 
person. Noah is mentioned in 1 Chronicles, in Isaiah, in Ezekiel, in Matthew, Luke, in Hebrews, and in 1st and 2nd Peter. So Noah is a very important person in Bible history. The book of the generations of Noah runs from Genesis 6, verse 9, through to the end of chapter 9, in the way that our Bibles are laid out. We're only going to be looking at right at the beginning of this account, this record, uh, this afternoon. So what do we find when we look here in Genesis 6, verses 9 to 22? We find a righteous man in a wicked world. Noah was a righteous man in a wicked world. That tells us that there, right there in verse 9. Noah was a just or a righteous man, perfect or blameless in his generations. Noah walked with God. So Noah is a righteous man. He's a just man. He's a blameless man. Noah shows integrity in all that he does. He was honest. He was wise. Noah told the truth. He was kind to people. And most importantly of all, he had a close relationship with God, God who made the world. What was the key to Noah's upright life, his righteous life? Well, it was this. It was that he knew God as his friend. How could a man like Noah know God as his friend? Wasn't God a sinner? Isn't God, it wasn't, wasn't Noah a sinner? Isn't God holy? Well, yes, and Noah was a sinner, but Noah was a saved sinner. He was someone who'd done wrong, who knew he'd done wrong, and yet he had found grace in the eyes of the Lord. That's what we're told in Genesis 6, verse 8. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God had been kind to Noah. God had shown Noah special favor, not because of anything in Noah, but God had chosen to bless this man. He had chosen Noah to be his friend. So God gave Noah a heart to love God and to fear him. Noah knew God's standards. He knew, yes, that he was a sinner. He knew he needed God's forgiveness. At the end of chapter 8, we find Noah offering sacrifices to God, animal sacrifices. These animal sacrifices were signposts pointing forward to the one who would come one day to be the only sacrifice that can really take away our sins. They were pointing to the Lord Jesus. Well, Noah's heart showed in his life. It was obvious to everyone that Noah was different. What kind of world did Noah live in? Well, one sentence sums it up. It's there in verse 11. Genesis 6, verse 11. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. Corrupt. That's a word that's heard often today, isn't it? Corrupt, corruption. We tend to think about it in terms of financial affairs and in politics and so on, uh, underhand deals. The word there that's translated corrupt means ruined or spoiled. Or even you can think of it as rotten. The world was corrupt. It was ruined. It was spoiled. It was rotten. 
Why? It was because of the people in it. The earth was full of violence. That was Noah's world. Who says so? God does. Notice what it says there. The earth was corrupt before God. It's God's view that matters, not ours. People think, well, well, if I think things are okay, well, that's okay. But it's God's view of things that matters, not ours. God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, verse 12, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. All flesh, what's that about? It really means they're all people, all of humanity. Men and women, boys and girls, they were rotten through and through. They had made their lives rotten by their sins. Now, have you ever uh, got some, perhaps some chicken pieces and uh, you've put them in the bin and they've been in the bin maybe a day or two in the kitchen and you open the bin what a smell, smell of rotting meat. There's no smell quite like it, is there? And if you've smelt rotten meat, it's not a smell that you want to go back and uh, take another whiff of. Smell of death and decay. Well, that's what this world was like to God. It was stinking, it was a stench. That's how God viewed this world. The people of earth didn't pay any attention to what God thought. They lived as they pleased, and what pleased people was the opposite of what pleased God. How different uh, this world was to the world that God had made in the beginning, recorded there in Genesis chapter 1, just a few pages before in our Bibles. How different the world was now. Then God said in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31, it said, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. But now, when God looked at the world, it wasn't good at all. It was corrupt, full of violence. Humanity was rotten. The world stank. People were cruel to one another in their words, in their actions, and the world had become a dangerous place filled with anger and hatred. Does that sound familiar? Do you recognize that picture? Isn't that like what the world is that we live in today? Our society, sadly, is increasingly like that, isn't it? And it's true, if we're honest, that we find this rottenness even in our own hearts. None of us can point the finger at others and say, you're rotten and I'm okay. We find this rottenness in our own hearts. What had happened to God's good world? The answer's in Genesis 3. If you flick back to Genesis 3, you don't need to do it now, but you can do it at home. Adam and Eve had sinned. They disobeyed God. They'd gone against God's clear commands. And that was the end of God's perfect world. The world was spoiled. And Adam and Eve's descendants inherited the same sinful tendencies that they had introduced. And quickly, violence overthrowed. Chapter 4, Cain kills his brother, Abel. Cain's descendants become famous for their violence as well as for their technology. But God 
hadn't forgotten his promise. He made a promise in Genesis 3, verse 15, uh, that one day someone would come who would crush uh, the serpent's head, who would defeat the devil, and uh, God hadn't forgotten that promise. And that, that blessing that he promised was going to come through Adam and Eve's descendants. And in particular, through their son, Seth. In chapter 4, verse 25, people began to call on the name of the Lord, it says. But by Noah's time, very few, even of Seth's descendants, worshipped God. Most of them were full of wickedness too. And now it was down to just Noah and his close relatives. The rest of the world, the whole world, had corrupted their way. They're growing worse and worse over time. Sin was piling up, getting higher and higher through the generations. And so in verse 12, God looked upon the earth, and indeed it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. God looked upon the earth. God sees. You can't hide from God, no matter how hard you try. God sees you and me. He sees right inside us. He looks into our hearts, into our minds. He knows what you're thinking even now. He watches all our actions. When no one else sees you, God sees you. He observes the direction of your life and mine. He notices your attitude to him. What a difference there is. What a contrast between Noah and the world around him. Here was a righteous man in a wicked world. What about you? Which side are you on? Every one of us is either on one side or the other. You're either with God's people, like Noah was, those who've received God's kindness, or you're with God's enemies, those who live as enemies of God. There's no in-between place. Well, at this time, reading about in Genesis 6, only a handful of people were left who worshipped God. But God wasn't defeated. In fact, God was already preparing for future blessing. Notice verse 10 says, Noah begot three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Shem is mentioned first there, probably not because he was the oldest, which it seems if you work things out later on, he wasn't, based on the rest of the account, which we won't cover uh, this afternoon. Shem wasn't the oldest. Most likely he's mentioned first because he was the most significant in God's purposes for the world. It was through the descendants of Shem that one day Jesus would come. So God was not defeated. But first, before that blessing came, God was going to take some drastic action. We must now think about a very troubling truth. This is a truth that we need to know and to understand today. This is my second heading, if you're taking notes. God promises judgment for the world. God promises judgment for the world. Verse 12 again, God looked upon the earth and indeed it was corrupt. God looked, God saw, 
and God was going to act. And he told Noah what he was going to do. Verse 13, it says, And God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with this earth, with the earth. Here is God's character being revealed to us. God is holy. He won't allow wickedness to just go on and on. He will put a stop to it. God is holy. God is just. God won't allow wickedness to go unpunished. Now, even we, uh, we know that injustice is a terrible thing. Sometimes we get very angry when we see injustice and we see people who have committed dreadful crimes getting away with it. Even if people escape uh, human justice, no one can hide from God's justice. God is powerful. God is holy, he is just, he is powerful. God isn't some helpless bystander uh, like a member of the public who sees an armed robbery but can't do anything about it. God has the power to act and he will take action as a result of sin. Time is running out at this point for the world. The clock is ticking towards judgment day. The world of that time was about to be destroyed. Notice what God says. He says, I will destroy them, the people, with the earth. What would happen to the, to the earth was connected with what would happen to the people. Earth's destiny was tied up with the destiny of earth's rulers, with mankind the ones that God had put in charge of the earth, Genesis 1, verse 28. The wider creation was under a curse because of man's sin. Even the animals were going to suffer. Many of them would be destroyed along with the people. How was God going to destroy the world? Well, it was by a great flood, a worldwide flood, a flood on a scale that had never been seen before and has never been seen since. God spells out his judgment there in verse 17. He says, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. What a terrible thing was coming with this worldwide flood. And this was such a powerful event. It was a, a cataclysmic event, we might say today. And it's left marks that can be found throughout the world. There are gigantic rock formations laid down by water that stretch across continents. Thousands and thousands of square miles of the same rock formation laid down by water, sedimentary rocks. Millions of creatures buried in sediment or mud, uh, which has since turned into fossil-filled rock. They're found all over the world. Uh, many of them show signs of rapid burial in huge graveyards of thousands upon thousands of creatures. There are fossilized sea creatures found 
in mount, on mountaintops. We don't have to. We don't have time, unfortunately, to go into all these kinds of things um, this afternoon. But there's evidence all over the world, and if you want to find out more, there are many books and resources that you point you at that evidence, and you can find out more on AnswersInGenesis.org or on CreateCreation.com, and you can find books and. Uh, video materials and so on, which will explain some of that, that evidence. Well, after this flood, the earth would never be the same again. Uh, Peter says that the world that then existed perished. Well, that was thousands of years ago. Uh, what about us? Well, judgment is coming now, too. Uh, judgment is on the way. God's judgment is coming, not by water this time but by fire. God will destroy every living thing. You can read about it in 2 Peter 3. He will purge out of this world all that is wicked. The clock is ticking now. God's people, for all people, sorry, people today, just like the people of Noah's time, are in a situation where the world is facing judgment. And just like in Noah's time, most people, many people, have no thought that suddenly destruction from God will come upon the whole world. Most people in our society don't view this world as one facing God's judgment. They don't believe in such things. They will mock at them. They will make jokes about it. They think only in terms of human-induced catastrophe or perhaps natural disaster. There's a lot of talk of global warming and so on and how we have to save the planet, but they don't think about the greatest danger that this planet faces, which is God's judgment. They think maybe of an asteroid coming and uh, hitting the earth and trying to protect ourselves from that. They say that we must save ourselves from ourselves by taking action on climate issues and so on. Now, I'm not knocking looking after the world in which we live, but there's a greater danger than uh, the worst of the climate catastrophe that is in people's minds, however likely that is to occur or not. God's judgment is on the way, but people put this thought of God's judgment out of their minds. But one day, just as he did in Noah's time, God will take action. He will bring this time the final judgment. Who actually will bring this judgment? Well, it's in fact the one who came into this world as a man. Uh, Jesus Christ, the one who is King of kings and Lord of lords, he is the one through whom God will judge the world. Acts 17, verses 30 and 31. Time is running out for the world of today. Will all be lost then? Is there any hope? Well, we have the Bible, so we do have hope. But we might think to ourselves sometimes like this, has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his tender mercies? That's what the writer of Psalm 77 said. It sometimes feels like that. Has God forgotten to be gracious? to be gracious, well, what hope is there? That's my final 
heading this evening, God's gracious provision. God's gracious provision. That's our hope. God's grace is still alive. God's grace in in the time of Noah was still alive. God had not forgotten his promise in Genesis 3.15. He was going to preserve a remnant, a small number of people who were left over, eight of them to be precise. And he told Noah in verse 14, Genesis 6, he said to Noah, make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms or nests or compartments in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. And so he goes on to give him those instructions. God told Noah to become a boat builder. Noah had never been a boat builder before, and yet Noah had to make this huge wooden boat with enormous amounts of space on board. No one in the world had ever made such a boat. But now this boat was needed. And God goes on to say there, he said, the length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, that's at least 450 feet in old money, or 140 meters, if you prefer meters, its width 50 cubits, and its height 30 cubits, and so on. It gives him a design for the ark. This boat wasn't Noah's design, it was God's design. Noah had to follow God's instructions, and those instructions were just right. Now, people who've looked into this and done computer modeling and so on, who know about hydrodynamics and uh, buoyancy of boats and so on, and those who've studied it have found that the dimensions of this boat, the shape of this boat, the proportions of it, length to width and height and so on, make it extremely stable in rough sea. It's like a, a barge of a very stable design. It's the ideal shape if you wanted to stay afloat in floodwaters. You didn't have to, no, I didn't have to travel and pilot. The boat didn't have to be efficient for sailing long distances. It just had to stay afloat to keep him safe and the animals safe and his family safe in a rough sea. This boat was extremely hard to tip over in the water. It wasn't like the pictures that you see in many children's storybooks, which would have flipped over very easily. Uh, it was, was more like the shape, it would appear, of a gigantic barge. Well, here was God's provision, God's gracious provision, God's rescue vehicle, we can call it. Here was a lifeboat for Noah and his family and thousands of animals and birds with them. So we see that God's promise of judgment was surrounded with words of mercy and kindness. Verse 17, God says, Behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, and of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you 
every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. So the ark would be a place of safety, a way for Noah and his family and the animals and birds with them to escape the judgment that God was about to bring on the world. God provides for Noah and his family. He provides for the survival of humanity. He provides for the survival of the other creatures that God had made. And he provides for a future savior. What comforting words God gave to Noah. Verse 18, I will establish my covenant with you. I will establish my covenant with you. That's the first time in the Bible for a very important Bible word. What is a covenant? In the Bible, God's covenants are commitments that God makes to treat people in a certain way. God was committing, he was promising to bless, to bless not just Noah, but future generations. Here was a sure promise from God that Noah could trust in and rely on. Noah, yes, he was going to see God's terrifying judgment, but God would keep Noah and his family safe. Here was God's gracious provision. You shall go into the ark. Provision of shelter from God's wrath, escape from that judgment. Provision of food to keep alive. Provision for the future, people and animals to populate the world again. All of us in this room are descended from Noah and Noah's family. Provision for a savior to come, the Lord Jesus, who would one day come and destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3, verse 8. How should we think about God's message to Noah? Very sober words, weren't they, that God told Noah judgment coming on the, on, on the world. What a, what a message to receive for Noah. How should we think about God's message to Noah? Well, God was bringing Noah, in fact, God was bringing Noah good news. In our language, the language that we would use today as Christians, God was preaching the gospel to Noah. He was saying, I am bringing judgment, but here is the way to be saved. This was a message not for Noah to keep to himself, but a message to pass on. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, says Peter, 2 Peter 2, verse 5. He wasn't just preaching God's law, bringing condemnation and judgment, but God's grace, bringing salvation, was what Noah preached. Sadly, no one believed him apart from his immediate family. How lonely was that task for Noah? What discouragement he faced but Noah was a preacher of righteousness. He knew the gospel all those years. That gospel in prototype, if you like. We have the full gospel given to us through Jesus Christ. But Noah had that good news from God of future blessing and God's provision for salvation. How did Noah respond to God's words? The answer is in verse 22. Thus Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. So that's the way that 
The Hebrew emphasizes things. It repeats things. It says, thus, Noah did according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Noah, Noah did it all. There was nothing he left out. Noah didn't just admire God's words. He believed them. He acted on them. He was a man of faith. Noah believed God. He laid hold of the way of salvation that God had provided. In his case, that was to build an ark for the saving of his household. He had faith to go on building that ark year after year in the face of opposition, in the face, no doubt, of mockery, and so on. Noah persevered, and by the time the flood came, the ark was ready. It wasn't Noah's good works that saved him. It was faith in God's provision. Faith moved him to action, believing what God told him. It moved him to action. It moved him to lay hold of God's salvation design. Hebrews 11 verse 7 says this in the New Testament. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned, warned by God of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, fear of judgment, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. We too, as God's people, are surrounded by a wicked world. We live in a society here in the UK of growing wickedness. You only have to turn on your TV if you have one, uh, look on the internet, uh, open a newspaper, and you'll see that the world is full of wickedness. You only have to go to school, you only have to go to the office to know that this world is full of wickedness. But God has revealed himself to us. He has given us hearts. If we're his people this afternoon, he's given us hearts to love him and to serve him. He's given us a message of judgment, but it's a message of judgment inside a message of mercy. We have good news for the world. It's news that we have believed and rely on ourselves. It's the only truth that can rescue people from God's judgment. What is this message? Well, it's the gospel. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. There is one way to escape the final judgment that God has promised, that judgment by fire. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way, he said in John 14, verse 6. So Jesus is the way. It's an urgent message. You can't brush this message to one side. If you are hearing this message this evening and you've not believed it, I urge you to believe it, to lay hold of the salvation that God offers to us in Jesus Christ. It's no good trying to build a fireproof shelter of your own design. People try that with various religions in this world, with their ideas of morality. They try to, to build a shelter that will shelter them from God's judgment. Talk to a Muslim, and a Muslim will tell you, well, I hope that my good deeds will outweigh my bad deeds. Ask them if you're, they're sure. They won't be sure. And yet, they could be sure. If they would take Jesus Christ as their saviour, 
then they, know, they would know that they would be safe from God's judgment. Jesus is our shelter. He is our place of refuge. He is our ark, if you like. He is our hiding place. Only he can keep us safe from God's judgment. Well, if God has given us hearts to love him, it will become clear to others around us that we are different. We will live differently from the world around us. We have different aims, we have different loves, different priorities, different attitudes in our lives. Yes, sometimes we stumble and fall, but in Jesus there is always forgiveness. Take your sins to him. He will make you clean. Have you done that? Are you doing that? Are you doing that? You can do it as you sit there in your seat this afternoon. Don't delay. Whether you know God already and you've sinned and you need God to forgive you, don't let Satan tell you, you can't, you have no right to come to God through Christ. God invites us all to come without exception through Jesus Christ to receive that forgiveness and that salvation that comes through him. Well, praise God. The future of this world isn't ultimately tied up with the future of the people that God will judge. God said he would destroy them with the earth in Noah's day. But the future of this creation is not bound up with the future of people that God will destroy. It's bound up with the future of people that God is saving and will save. Romans 8, verse 20 and 21 say this. The creation was subjected to futility, to decay and so on, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. That is the destiny of this world. If you love the Lord Jesus, if he is your savior, you will share in that glorious future. So let's heed what God said to Noah. Let's proclaim the good news that God has given to us, to those around us. Sometimes we can become hopeless in our thinking and just focus on the wickedness of the world and we think, well, there is no uh, hope. But there is great hope and God is still at work saving thousands of people all over the world. There'll be people from every nation and language. They're coming into his kingdom and they'll be praising Christ for all eternity.